0: The subject of today's podcast is what we will describe as the technologies of sex. This refers to the ways in which questions around gender and sex have, in many ways, become increasingly central to social life over the last 30 years. On one level, these questions have perhaps always been central, but we have certainly seen a shift towards a legislative recognition of a greater sense of diversity than previously. By technologies of sex, I'm thinking of the ideas of the French philosopher Michel Foucault, and he's thinking about how the self and gender are the product of various social technologies, such as cinema, and institutionalized discourses and epistemologies of everyday life. The term technology leads to a certain understanding of social systems as functioning a bit like machines to produce the things we see as material and real. Hello and welcome I am John Lynch and this is the GeoMedia podcast from Karlstad University in Sweden. In the podcast I talk to the Swedish journalist and writer Kaiser Ikis Ekman. Kaiser has published several books including Being and Being Bought Prostitution, Surrogacy, and the Split Self, and her most recent book in Swedish that translates as About the Existence of Gender Thoughts on the New View of Gender. Welcome, Kaiser. Thank you for coming onto the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Why has sex and the the discussion around it become so significant today? It seems in many ways to have become quite a central element of our daily lives and is increasingly legislative in terms of sort of top-down change, uh, language and visibility. Why do you think it's become so central today?
1: Well, I think sex has always been a sensitive topic in a very you know, much debated topic. I don't think a week passes in any country of the world without, you know, a a debate regarding something that's happened. For example, uh, a rape, you know, that's very publicized or, you know, discrimination or someone said something, a famous person said something, you know, about women or, you know, so these things always happen. But What's happening now, I think, on the political level, and this is what I wrote my last book about on the existence of sex, on the new definition of women, So, is that basically more and more states in the advanced industrialized world are um, adopting a definition of sex, um, which basically relies upon stereotypes of gender. So we're having here kind of reversal of what used to be uh, sex, which, you know, uh, biological material observable at birth and gender, which, you know, has been used for around 30, 40 years by especially the feminist movement to refer to um, the social construction construction of hierarchies, stereotypes, um, identities and behaviors. I mean, a simple fact, like women are supposed to like um, to be at home with kids, you know, to take an old stereotype. Men are supposed to like uh, cars, you know, all that's gender. But now we have this kind of reversal where we're told that uh, it's actually your gender that is your sex. So you're supposed to register that um, and not your sex, your biological material sex sex. So more and more laws, for example, we had uh, just the day before yesterday, uh, the government of Spain, the parliament of Spain voted on the new law, which makes it possible for anybody above 15 years of age to register uh, their own um, self-identified gender as their sex in passports and, you know, for all reasons, without having had any contact with, you know, um, the healthcare system, or something like that. So basically, sex is becoming a matter of self-identification, which then falls back on gender norms.
0: So, so why do you think then that governments—you um, uh, mentioned Spain, and of course other examples—why? What's their motivation for doing that then? Because mm. traditionally as you say, the stability of the, sorts, the sex-gender um, dualism, if you like, was, was, was seen as quite foundational in many ways. Why, why have they, you say they've reversed that, or they certainly seem to be putting that under quite different um, understanding. Well, what, what, would you, what do you speculate as a kind of motivation for that?
1: Well, increasingly um, it's being said that your gender is your sex. Whereas we in the feminist movement always try to say they have nothing to do with each other. You know, just because you're born with certain genitals doesn't mean that you have to behave a certain way, act a certain way, have a certain salary, have a certain position in life. So for us, the sex gender distinction was a way to separate, you know, what can't be changed and what can be changed. Um, But now, as you're saying, this is being reversed. So. Basically, they're saying that, you know, your gender is your sex and the sex basically doesn't exist. It's not interesting as a category anymore. What you're born with, you know, is is not your sex. It's how you feel. And, you know, what's interesting, I think, is that when it's being um, defended, relating back to your question, um, it's being defended as this is a change that's done for the benefit of transgender people. Whereas I think that's very strange because, you know, a change that means that anyone without having contact with the healthcare system would be able to change their sex um, in their passport and for all you know other reasons like compete in sports and things like that, um, kind of is for everyone except trans people you know what i mean because what trans person would be interested in that like not changing anything about the way you look but the only thing you change would be your passport in what way would that help so i think what we're seeing here is a, is a much bigger change that essentially has very little to do with trans people and what it has to do with i think is is actually reversing and a lot of the 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 victories that the feminist movement has had and that the women, women's movement has had and that the gay movement has had um, in a very kind of intricate way so that you, you can't tell that that's what's happening. But if you look at the concrete consequences of laws like this, um, you see that has very detrimental effects for women, for example.
0: Well, if we, if we take a take a fairly, as you say, concrete example, sort of material example, you say so, uh, uh, issues of equal pay, um, uh, which has always been a sort of important part of, of, of the women's movement in that regard, equal pay for equal work in, in that sense. You know, um, if, if the distinction, if this distinction in terms of gender is becoming uh, less uh, rigid, in what in what ways would it undermine the, the 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 arguments and the um and the and the struggle for equality in, in in pay, for instance? How I mean how would it affect that?
1: Well, I don't think that because you change your sex in your passport that you know you're gonna get a raise in in, in your salary or that they're gonna lower your salary because Discrimination is, is a social phenomenon. It's not based on what's in your passport. It's based on how you're perceived, what, what sex you're perceived to have. And what, what is, however, in danger from these new laws is the ability to um, work against discrimination. For example, you might have a law that says uh, we need a quota of 30% women here, for example. Um, In, you know, it can be on the board of of a company or it can be on, you know, certain course at university. Like I know in Sweden, a lot of universities have, for example, the goal that 30% or 40% of the students in traditionally male dominated areas should be women. Now, if anybody can register as a woman without actually being one, um, that means that you can just tick a box and all of a sudden you get access to that quota which i know was the case for example in the labor party in the uk that has you know a short list for women like only women can 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 enter and that's been changed to nowadays you have to have the gender identity of being a woman not the sex of being a woman so it not only means that men who have no interest in actually you know, being a woman as such, but an interest in political power can tick that box and and claim they have a female gender identity, so they should be entitled to to that post. But it also means I was talking to one uh, female uh, Labour Party member who said, "Well, I don't have a gender identity. I I am of the sex woman, but I don't identify myself as woman with all that that entails in terms of stereotypes. I don't feel I have an identity, so." then she was told that you need to tick this box, otherwise you cannot (laughs) access this list. So I think that's one of the concrete examples of how we need to um, have access to data on men and women specifically to be able to combat discrimination. but discrimination in itself, you know, it's, it's much more social than that. Like, if you're walking on the street and somebody's following you late at night, it's not what's in his or her passport that determines whether you are going to feel, oh, I'm scared of this person or this person does not present a danger. You know, this is part of the social fabric.
0: Sure. So I wonder then... If you see any uh, connection or um, comparison um, in terms of this, as I say, what what strikes me is that in in many cases this is a sort of top down change, as you say in Spain and elsewhere that uh, or other countries. Um, uh, and organizations um, as well. Um, Do you see any sort of correlation to the neoliberal project itself as this, uh, really, if we think in the last 30 years, then where there have been uh, significant changes in terms of equality and discrimination and things like that. At the same time then, of course, Neoliberalism has pushed the market into all of our social systems. Do you see any, uh, as I say, any kind of correlation between those two things?
1: Mm, Most definitely, because the neoliberal project has been the overriding, you know, superstructure of contemporary capitalism. And it formulates everything in life as having to do with choice. You know, you decide, you own your body. Thereby positing a kind of owner-slave um, relationship between the subject and the body, as if the body was just a thing that you owned and that you could, you know, do whatever you wanted with it. Um, so there's a kind of dualism there that's very present in this, um, as if the, you, you know, because as 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 I see it as a Marxist and a feminist, you are your body in a sense. You don't own it. Um, this current also is very prevalent in discussions about prostitution or surrogacy or pornography like oh no no she she's she's uh empowered she she knows what she's doing, she owns her body, she does what she wants with it. what the body wants, you know nobody asks nobody asks you know does does her body get turned on by this um the body's just kind of an object to be used, and uh, yeah, I can recognize that current as well in this discussion, like each individual should decide on his or her gender identity and that should just be respected by everyone as if we didn't live in a society where gender hierarchies are um, negotiated every time that two people interact because that's how hierarchies um, come up in the meeting between people. It's nothing that you yourself can just decide on and decide, well, I am this, so everybody has to treat me that way. Well, it'd be wonderful if it were that way. But, you know, gender is nothing without the interaction between people. That's where it's born.
0: Do you see something in terms of how capitalism uh, in in the last 20, 30 years, then uh, it's been described as, as, as shifting in to, towards a sort of immaterial sort of process in many ways that the um, – uh, this shift to cognitive capitalism and, a, and a, a kind of working that's less ab- about material in that sense. Does that translate into this idea that that, that it, it's, it, it can suit the neoliberal project to have this kind of sense of immateriality?
1: I mean, most definitely on a concrete level, um, especially um, big pharma and, the medical or parts of the medical establishment is is gaining a lot from the transition, especially of teenagers. That is something that I analyze in my book, you know, when, when, when the industry does like um, market research about what markets are supposed to grow, they say that this market is going to grow, grow uh, by 25% just in the coming years, especially the transition between fr- from girls to boys, young girls who want to become medically transitioned um, to become or to, to resemble young boys. And that is a segment that's going to grow a lot. And, but it all depends on whether states uh, will pay for this treatment, because if you would have to pay for this treatment yourself, I mean, nobody would be able to afford it. It's very costly. So the pressure has been on states to include these transitions in uh, the public health care system meaning that you have to have a reason why they should do so. And the the raison d'etre has been formulated as such that if you don't give young girls who want to become boys this treatment, they will commit suicide. They will suffer. They cannot live without this treatment. So thereby states have been pressured to include this, which means that money goes straight down the pockets of the companies that produce, for example, puberty blockers. Um, and to me, what was shocking when I studied that, Subject is that they are not approved um, to actually treat gender dysphoria. They are actually medicines for prostate cancer. Um, So there's a lot of shocking details in this, how treatments like this have just been approved without the necessary research. Now, um, one hospital in Sweden, in Karolinska here in Stockholm, just stopped this treatment and so did Tavistock in in the uk so i think now we're in a period of time where actually the the negative consequences of this are becoming a bit too evident i mean there was a young british girl who, who went through a medical transition to become a boy and then changed her mind and she sued the healthcare system and this was, was led this is what led to them stopping this treatment in the uk <sighs> In
0: terms then of the idea of, um, as as you say, that uh, there's a sense that our bodies are something that uh, we can work with, that we take responsibility for, you know, we can change in in all sorts of different ways. Um, And it reminds me a little bit of uh, the work by um, uh, Boltanski and Ciappolo, they talk in the book, the new spirit of capitalism, that since 68, what capitalism has done has sort of incorporated at the, the, the sort of demands of, of, of that period, which was, you know, um, against rigid hierarchies for uh, the, the release of desire, shall we say, and, you know, all of this kind of thing. And, and in that sense, and, and a shift from sort of, um, As I say, sort of hierarchies and fixed, static systems to flexibility, to freedom of movement, and things like this. Is there a sense then in which, as I say, the there you know within mixed within this is also issues of what you might call desire. You know, we we are as beings, we are looking to experiment with ourselves, to expand the possibilities that we have, to change the things that we can. I mean, is there there a a, a liberatory aspect to that?
1: Yeah, well, I think that's the common perception. I mean, the the slogan of this whole treatment is um, become who you really are. And I mean, isn't that a contradiction in terms? Because how can you become who you already are? So what they're basically saying is, you know, everybody has to strive to find their inner self in this case, in terms of gender identity. But I mean, it goes for the whole society that you have to attain your goals. You know, you have to strive, never give up. Uh, Only you know what's best for yourself. So there's also that thing that you no longer go to a doctor to ask what's wrong. You go to tell him what's wrong and he has to give you the treatment that you demand. Otherwise, you go to another doctor. So um in that sense you decide what is your gender identity you go to the medical establishment to get treated in the way that you want and then you become who you are so the body here again figures as a kind of object that is to be changed to match um who you really are and and i mean the term here is like gender incongruence they call it when you feel like a gender but your body doesn't show any signs of being that sex. So then you, you change your body in order to achieve gender congruence, um, meaning that you feel like a boy, but you also look like a boy. So you're perceived by everybody else like a boy, whatever that is. And that's, I think, the question, what is a boy? What is a girl? What is a man? What is a woman? And those are the questions that are seldom asked. Um, And I think that points to a kind of contradiction of of this current um, new definition of sex and gender, because we're told that, oh, everybody decides in their own unique identity. Um, But identities such as boy and girl are not unique. You know, they're very generalized. So who then decides what is a boy like?
0: Well, I suppose that idea of the the sort of cultural specificity of those things—I mean, that was something very much that, say, queer theory made made much of the possibilities of disrupting the accepted forms of those things as as a as a certain kind of performance of identity. Is there still something that you see as as a sort of um, useful in that that idea of of I mean, if you you know. These roles are culturally determined. a boy in one place is not the same as a boy in another or vice you know, girl or whatever um, again the the uh, the sort of disrupting of those standards, if you like i mean for for, for, queer, for queer politics in the '90s and things that was seen as quite a, um, an important way of of again, um, sort of destabilizing the hierarchies, if you like, because I mean, the point about boy and girl is that they're not just one or the other, one is above the other in different ways. Or, and you know in different contexts, perhaps girl can be above boy. I mean, it's not a simple thing, but the, do you see anything in that kind of idea?
1: Well, I think we're moving away from, from the queer perspective on things. Um, I have a chapter about that in my book where I say that, you know, I I trace the movement back from from the time in the 60s, 70s, when when women's studies were established at universities, for example, and um, there was this very kind of emancipatory aspect of this. You know, this was about liberating women. Um, Words like inclusion hadn't really appeared. It was just liberation, basically. And it was trying to work in the interest of women. Now, back then, um, the the categories of sex versus gender were very useful. Now, when Judith Butler came along, she destabilized the whole idea of sex, saying there is no sex that was gender all along. So even the idea of an immutable sex that's just biological material um, was kind of taken down. So basically everything is gender. And when everything is gender, everything is fluid, right? It's just all changing all the time. And by disrupting, by mimicking, by, you know, doing parody, you could destabilize those categories uh, of male, female. So basically, according to queer theory, um, if you are to interpret it strictly, you know, post-structurally, there is nothing such as men and women. You know, you can't be a man and a woman. You can just believe you are. Um, I of course as a materialist um, don't really agree with that because I believe that there is such a thing as as materia there is such a thing as reality, objective reality. I of course believe that you know if, if somebody if a male person has intercourse with me, you know I will possibly become pregnant whereas if a male person has intercourse with you, you are not going to become pregnant no matter what we believe. So but that's beside the point what I think. The point is that that theory I think queer theory was It was very interesting because it led to a lot of experimenting, a lot of freedom. For a lot of people, that was life, you know, to constantly play with categories. So it was fun. But now we're moving away from that. We're getting a kind of to a new um, biologist essentialism, in a sense, but without biology, because with a new uh, definition of, of sex and gender, we're told that you can be a man and a woman but it's not about your body. It's about what you feel and what you believe. So we're told that uh, a man that decides now that he's a woman and that transitions tomorrow, he's always been a woman. He was just born in the wrong body, but he has always been a woman. According to queer theory, that shouldn't be possible because you can never be anything. And it also depends on how he's interpreted by the rest of the world. You know, about the, uh, Butler uses this Uh, louis althusser a concept of i think you call it interpolation like you call somebody hey you there and that person's being defined so if he has his whole life been defined as a man as a boy um, according to what is he and has always been a woman but nowadays you know essentialism is kind of creeping back but the weird thing is has nothing to do with the body so he can essentially be a woman without having a woman's body, without having been seen as a woman, because only the individual knows what identity he or she has.
0: I mean, it's interesting, I think, uh, as you say, so Judith Butler's sort of formulation of, of subjectivity, this, that our sense of self, whatever that may be, is dependent on the sort of a repetition of a sort of recognized behavior, um, and the sort of disrupting again that process i think she, she uses the phrase becoming undone there is do you think there's something to what she says about the idea that every i mean i think in some ways even even uh, every every assertion of identity in that sense itself begins to become undone in that way in the way that you're saying there i think that you know if if, if you um, if you switch identities in one sense in that way, then uh, it, it it does have a, a it does raise that possibility within that of of a sort of uncertainty. Is that is that an area of uh, because I suppose this idea of ambiguity and uncertainty um, for people like Butler and others was what was important in that sense. That, you know, that maybe it may be a certain kind of deconstructive move, but the point was is that every every attempt to, to fi- even if it's fixing something else, is itself going to be undone by that process. Do you
1: see that as something? Yes, that- exactly. Like if you're trying to be super feminine, you know, it might be perceived as aggressive, which then could be perceived as masculine, things like that so you're right like in any process of trying to be something you know there is always the opposite working within that and i think she did a great job of analyzing you know um in detail those those very processes and but i think it's it's funny how now she's having trouble um positioning herself uh, um in relation to to the new definition of sex and gender because When she's been asked, she's been very criticized by trans activists who say, how can you say there's nothing such as men and women? We feel that we are. You can't say that we're not. And these are the people that are supposed to be her allies. So when she's been responding to those allegations, she's very kind of elusive. I mean, more so than, I mean, she's known to be elusive, but this is, now she's even more elusive. And she says, well, you know, I never wanted to criticize somebody's identity. And of course, you know, if you are, if you feel that you are something you are, but it's interesting because I don't think she would have said that back in the nineties, if somebody asked her, you know, well, I am a woman and she would say, no, nobody is anything. Um, but nowadays um, that is not appreciated anymore. So I think it's, it's interesting because it's like, um, I mean, there's one post-structuralist here in Sweden, uh, Sara Edenheim, at Umeå University, who um, still sticks with, you know, Butler's original idea. And she says, you know, no identity is innocent. Everybody's guilty of something. <laughs> and I think that's very eloquent. I mean, as, as a feminist, me, I just think um, I wish identities were just separated from the question of sex entirely our sex, you know, man, woman had nothing to do with identity at all, you know, that we could just take all those issues such as feelings, behavior, hierarchy, and, and, and you know, put them on the, onto the field of personality. Just say, this is my personality, but why attribute a gender or a sex to your personality? What does it even have to do with it? You know, because essentially what is sex? It's just chromosomes. It's like a reproductive function. You know, it's, it's nothing more than that. It doesn't have to be more than that. And I don't think it's liberating to start attributing all these old stereotypes to the concept of woman and man. You know, I think we can just leave the reproductive functions alone to be what they are and have our personalities just not be tainted by, by, by sex or gender. But I know that we're not there, I mean, by far. It seems like sometimes we're going backwards.
0: Is there anything to the sort of non-binary idea or, um, uh, and the, the, you know, through, through, through language and the refusal of, of gender pronouns and things? Is that, does that offer any possibility for ev- at least evading those kinds
1: of issues? Well, I understand where that desire is coming from. Like, don't include me in your gender game. I don't want to be part of it. Like, I want nothing to do with it. And I especially understand why young females would feel attracted to that idea. Because today, like entering puberty, it's more segregated than ever. I mean, not in, okay, sure, we have all these possibilities, you know, you can become, um, I don't know, CEO of something. But in terms of sexuality, in terms of looks, I mean, it's very segregated. It's not like when I was growing up that everybody was wearing like the same striped clothing. I mean, now it's very much pink, blue, you know, things like that. So I understand why young girls would want to evade that and just not be part of that sexual game. But what I find is like a one way street is that why do you have to resign from your sex in order to be free why is it not possible to say i am a young girl but i still don't want to have long hair i still don't want to play with you know dolls i still don't want to uh whatever you have to do i'm just me anyway you know it because i think you know doesn't that relate back to them having or society having like a a too narrow definition of woman, so you have to jump out of it in order to be free, right? Why can't we just say, well, even if I am a girl, I still do what I want. One of
0: the things you that you talk about in the in the book, uh, uh the being and um, be, being being what's the English title? Being and being
1: and being bought. Yeah, the one about prostitution. Being and sorry, bored, Yeah. It.
0: Um, I and mean, one of the things that uh, the, the sort of traditions I came from um, in the UK was cultural studies, and this was very interested in the idea of sort of everyday practices of, of sort of marginalised groups and cultures. That a they're both worthy of study, but really built into that then is is a sense of resi- uh, you know ritual as resistance, the resistance. Uh, element to that. Do you see that as a useful way to approach the study of, sort of living in society today?
1: Is that course still being given at universities?
0: Well, I mean, that it's a sort of discipline in itself. So cultural studies, where I came from, there in the University of Birmingham there, that was the center for contemporary cultural studies, Stuart Hall and people like that. And so they would look at whether it was music, culture, subcultures, all that kind of idea. So, I mean, that has shifted and changed over the years. It's certainly not, um, it doesn't exist in in that form anymore. But I suppose what's the the principle of that, that at the heart of that, that, Again, I suppose it, it derives partly from sort of Althusser you mentioned, and also Foucault, this idea of, 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 of power as something which is dispersed and which we all engage in in different ways. Um, and resistance in that sense then can, can be uh, the way people dress, the way they socialise together, the groups they form, the, the music they listen to, whatever it may be, that there's, a, there's a, a, an important element of sort of self-control and self-invention there that um, is counterposed to sort of the sort of commodification of society in that way. Is that something yeah. still today that you think, because you do mention, I think that something about the sort of cultural studies idea.
1: Yeah. I can't remember where I mentioned that, but you're right. I remember it as being more powerful than, than it is today. Right. That kind of perspective on, on society. I mean, you're mentioning Foucault. I just think, you know, poor Foucault, he's probably turning in his grave from like all the people misinterpreting and using his work for all the wrong reasons. You know, there's like there is Foucault and what he wrote, which I think is brilliant. And then there is every time I hear his name, I'm like, no, 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 no. (laughs) Here comes something I'm not going to like. And it's not because of him. It's because of he's used to kind of relativize anybody who wants to analyze power today, which I think is the total opposite of what he really did. You know, he was trying to put his finger at how power is operating. But nowadays, you know, everybody who is trying to say, oh, look, we have power here. And then somebody says, no, because Foucault's power is everywhere. So that means it's nowhere. So there's no power, you know. So basically, he's been used as an element to defend power structures, which is baffling. And I mean, I, in my last book, I try to understand how studies um, have gone from studying what's material, what's real, you know, what can be uh, empirically proven, um, and to study more like discourses, which I think, you know, it was interesting in the beginning, but now it's gone too far. It's like anybody now who graduates is, you know, excellent at understanding discourse, but knows nothing about reality. So instead of studying like how are women living, you know, what are women's lives like, you know, we get, you know, what is the image of women? What's the narrative about women in contemporary media, for example, so it's as if there was only the image, as if there was only a narrative. There's nothing real behind it. So reality is, you know, standing here, screaming, like, look at me, here I am. But, but people are unable to even perceive the fact that there would be something as a reality. It's like, no, 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 we're just studying, for example, how are Muslim women perceived in, in the media? Or, you know, what's the narrative? And the idea being that the narrative is always wrong somehow. Um, so you can never reach any ground stand on from where to begin your liberation or from where to begin your struggle. Uh, it's just criticizing different narratives, but often without proposing a counter narrative, which renders you powerless in the end. I don't know if it makes sense to you what I'm trying to talk about, but I've just realized that, you know, people are graduating from universities, sometimes with knowledge that you know it's is kind of useless for understanding the the big challenges of today I mean for example now we have all these real material things like climate change you know that that you know you can't just know about this course to understand these things
0: well I suppose much of the emphasis is put on I mean not that I'm an expert in those areas at all but um I mean you, you think you you yourself did a master's in literature so I think about sort of the sort of Study of literature or art or film and things like this, and in one sense, um, part of what motivates that then is is well a, a greater awareness of the sort of foundational concepts. First of all, that in the past perhaps were not named but just sort of taken for granted. So I think that that kind of naming process and that 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 visibility is part of it. Um, I think there's something there about the question of sort of diversity diversity of experience as well, that you know, um, what 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 people's lived experiences are like and and, and how it's not just you know a narrow as as you know, as you're well aware, the sort of traditional notion of a kind of white masculine sort of um, experience as 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 the as the measure. Uh, for for all others in that way, so there is there's something to it in that kind of sense. At the same, well, I mean, what goes hand in hand with that, though, in one sense, is potentially the uh, certainly the weakening of the grounds of judgment in that sense. So then, you know, it's like, well, if you're gonna if you're gonna question the foundations, then you're inevitably going to make though the the, the security in which you can stand on those and make judgments is going to be less stable and um, which isn't the same as relativism, I don't think, but it, it is a sense that um, because I, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think it, it, exactly what you say about Foucault and, and his name and, and his work um, uh, is true. Um, I think to a certain extent with Judith Butler as well, I think there's a sort of, uh, uh, a sort of, there's a, there's a, there's a sensitivity to her ideas in many ways, and that, but you can you can you can over um, over extend these things, I think, to uh, in a way that um, uh, he sort of goes against really the 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 as you say with Foucault, really the what what he was really sort of interested in in doing in that regard. Um, I, I mean, think to deconstruction you deconstruction
1: so- would be really useful today when it comes to deconstructing the eye, because I think like today, what you're, especially in regards to what you're saying about experience, you know, the personal experience is not being questioned enough. I mean, often the personal narratives are taken as, as if they were just, you know, the Bible, this is just like, so authoritarian. You cannot question that because that is somebody's experience. What's very interesting because often, you know, a lot of people tend to recount their experiences in the same way during the same uh, time. Whereas if you would read how somebody would write about their experience in a different country in a different time, it would sound quite different. Not only because the experience is different, but because of the way you think about your experience is different. And today, I think we tend to get these like very um, typical um, biographies or, or people, I mean, For example, in Sweden, you know, there's this radio program called Sommar, and then everybody, all these famous people are going to tell about their upbringing and, you know, how they became who they are. And, And I've been thinking about why is the personal experience so linear today? You know, it's very much fitting into what you can call like a neoliberal paradigm. Like you start, you have a problem of some kind, you know, you're discriminated. And if you can't, find that in discrimination in your background, like maybe you weren't working class, or you weren't an immigrant, or you weren't even a woman, or you weren't a homosexual or anything, you know, maybe you had uh, some mental disorder, or maybe, you know, there was something, maybe your grandpa was finished, like, you know, there's something you start always from, from below, and then you rise up. And it's amazing to me that people manage to tell these stories in such a convincing way that people really believe this is a real story. You know, it might be a real story. I'm not saying they're lying, but I'm saying the way they perceive their own story is being learned. You know, maybe that's not at all the way they really perceived it when it happened. Um, and, And I just find it amazing that that's what people think. That's how you tell about your life today. And this is called personal experience. And everybody's accepting it like, yeah you know, without deconstructing the very idea of how you put together your personal experience.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, autobiography in that sense, I mean, it's a process of fictionalization, you know, it's it's taking, as you say, it's first of all, what are the important What are the important moments out of all of the things that you could say what are the what what are the important ones and and then how you construct those in that as you say that kind of particular kind of narrative that is a kind of convention in a way um so is there is there a difference between what we might call norms and conventions that in the way that you describe there someone coming on or, or perhaps writing uh autobiography whatever format it would be um and in one sense, then you know there is a conforming to an established uh, structure. Um, in that sense, then that that that's that's. It. I mean, to it. First of all, yes. It's at the very least, it's offering people some kind of visibility, and perhaps they wouldn't have had that before. So, in itself, it's not inherently uh, negative. But yeah, it 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 perhaps is about. Um, restriction and conformity, is there, a, um, is there a way in which then that uh, people can, uh, and, and how does feminism engage then in a sort of socially transformative project whilst going against those conventions and norms, or is there a way in which to, as you say, shift to the sort of, the something in the phrase sort of lived experience to me, mm. which You know, and and I think this is what people like Butler and others are interested in. I think that does echo a little bit like the idea of gender and sex because, you know, we live our lives and people live their lives in all sorts of different ways. But as soon as they begin to describe that, then they fall back on the existing convention. So I think that's the idea about gender and sex. It's like, well, there is... You know, gender only functions, as as Butler says, as a category because there's this kind of imaginary thing, sex, over there, but we can't ever get to it, you know, but it has to be there. It's like a, a founding event which, you know, we can never get to but is, is fundamental. But is there a way of, of sort of working around that then, do you think, culturally?
1: Well, I think it's interesting because sometimes – um resistance you know it's like chasing a star that's you can only see the light but it actually died uh millions of years ago so we're still busy combating like the 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 dominant discourses of yesterday whereas uh power has shifted and is now using our like you were saying from from 1968 our words of rebellion of you know, fighting against the norm, going against the elite, you know, breaking down things. So we have to kind of update our analysis and realize, like, this is how power operates today and then know what will follow. Sure, we can posit personal experience as, as something good, as something that, you know, enables more people to talk and tell their stories and so on. But we also have to know that in the moment that we posit that as something uh, which we rely on you know, power is going to use that as well. So you're going to have power, like reformulating itself using that very narrative and saying, well, you know, um, I'm going to use that. So for example, the white man, what is he going to do? Well, he's going to create a kind of story according to which he's the most marginalized. He's the most oppressed because that's what you have to be today. You have to be the most oppressed somehow. So if he can find, you know, any, any narrative that goes with that, you know, Oh, he's non-binary. Well, that's, A kind of easy way because he doesn't have to, you know, have fled war-torn Syria, or he doesn't have to, you know, have really suffered. But essentially, he can still get access to the privilege that it means of, you know, I am an oppressed person now, telling my story. So we just have to know that as soon as, as as we manage to win something, you know, all the opportunists are going to go there as well. I don't know if I make sense, you know, I just I just see it happening over and over again. And I also see that, for example, when um, when the establishment was calling for more voices in terms of like immigrants or children of immigrants voices to be heard. You know, it wasn't always those that really had that experience that were heard. A lot of time it's people that can somehow dig up some legitimizing experience from their past who can use that transform that into a product that fits the the idea of what such a person would say it might not be what the person actually would say who had that life but it's the idea of what such a person would say and you know entrepreneurs would um kind of just design a product that fits that and, and sell it on the market as authentic experience
0: So sort of resistance itself is always incorporated and appropriated and uh, and used as a a kind of branding exercise or something like that.
1: Yeah. And if you're not aware of that, you know, you have what we have now, which is the arch patriarchal institutions like, you know, um, like prostitution, for example, which has been around for ages now rebranding itself as like the most feminist of of all experiences, you know, things like that.
0: Lastly, I just like to move on to, to, to one area to just discuss. Um, And that's really to do with the question, I think of, of technology. Um, I mean, what for, 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 you know, key parts of the the sort of feminist project technology and its possibilities in all sorts of different ways, from the body to reproduction, as you've talked about, and things like this. Um, what do you see as the uh, as, as the role in that of, of technology uh, with, for the feminist project today?
1: Do you mean like real technology, like not as a metaphor?
0: Yes, real technologies. Yes, indeed. Yeah, from repro- from reproductive technologies um, and um, ability to, you know, um, re- reproduce and uh, treatments to to um, um, technologies which allow the body to kind of expand their their possibilities in all sorts of different ways.
1: Well. It's not an area that I've studied a lot, but I can say one thing, and that's that I think there is a great inequality in how um, research is being done on reproductive technologies, for example, for men and women. I mean, we still don't have... Uh, contraception for males out on the market being used you know that i mean we always hear that next year you know there's going to be a pill that all guys are going to use but you know that next year never comes i mean we have been hearing that for 20 years it's still the responsibility um still lying on women and we always get backlash in terms of abortions being legalized in one country it's being you know banned somewhere else so it's always back and forth it seems like sometimes we're not going anywhere at the same time you know we hear excited talk about now, there's going to be like, um, a, a, an artificial uterus. So you women won't be needed anymore. <laughs> you know, I mean, I doubt that's going to happen either in a near future, thinking about what happened with, you know, the, the artificial tracheas of Macchiarini, um, which is, was also promised like as something revolutionary and it turned out all patients died. So I think it's way more difficult to create uh, a fake, Arm fake uh, uh, an artificial uterus than an artificial trachea as such, you know. But I wish that technologies um, were being developed more to solve the everyday problems of of women. I mean, the pill that is still like mostly used in the hormone spiral that's mostly used um has more much more dangerous side effects than the AstraZeneca COVID vaccine you know and still you know everybody's talking about that and, and 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 when women suffer consequences it's like you know they we just have to live with it
0: do you see the 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 sort of uh, often what's talked about is the idea of the sort of post human that there's that we're moving into an era then where um, you know the, the the sheer immersive nature of the sort of technological world that we live in um, is going to lessen those limitations in, of the traditional body. In that sense, the sort of and, and the very category of the human, which is often figured as as is essentially kind of male and and white and and everything else. I mean does that does the does this idea of the post human then offer any sense that there's a, a an expansion of 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 possibility there
1: hmm what do you think
0: well i think there's something i think there's something to that idea definitely um i think that um the um you know, much much of the uh, difference, shall we say, between uh, male and female comes down to to a no, particular notion of a body. And if that, if you be, if you can begin to um, uh, expand the possibilities of of different types of bodies and how those bodies work in relation to each other, then I think you can begin to, um, you know work more effectively against those sort of restrictions and limitations. I understand
1: what you mean now. Well, you know what? I'm not sure because I think that's like saying, you know, this popular notion that, you know, if everybody will mix, there'll be no racism. Like, oh, if just white people and black people and, you know, brown people, they all mixed and had children, you know, there'll be no racism because you're all going to be mixed. So there's going to be no categories. First of all, I doubt that we're going to get to a future where everybody's going to look exactly the same. You know, there's always going to be difference you know, it's not difference itself that creates racism, you know, as the same way that it's not difference that creates sexism or, or patriarchy. You know, it's not the fact that we all have to be alike. like we have to like erase uh, the reproductive difference between men and women for us to raise sexism, because that's like saying that the notion of uh, inequality comes from difference, You know, I don't think it comes from the actual body. I don't think racism comes because somebody is black. And I don't think uh, sexism arises because I have the ability to to give birth. I think it comes from a social structure, uh, a social hierarchy that you can do away with. Perfectly maintaining, you know, difference in the world, you know, which I don't think has any negative um, thing as such. Now. You know, with technologies, you always have to also take in the question of power, like who is developing those technologies and why, you know, because I know there is this drive within uh, a lot of male philosophers to, you know, they're very excited about the idea of of replacing women, of of doing away with women, because they're very uh, irritated by the fact that we have a capacity that they don't have and that they're never going to have and that's we can give birth and that every single human being has been, you know, born from a female body. And of course, they would love the fact that, oh, we can now create children in, uh, in laboratories where we have that power. So, you know, are they talking about really, um, you know, erasing hierarchies between men and women? Or are they talking about simply just taking our power away from us? Now, as I was saying, I don't think that's going to be possible, maybe never, but at least not in the near future, but as a thought, I can feel the vibe when they talk about these things as a kind of, ha-ha, you know, we won't be needing you guys anymore. <laughs> Do you see what I mean?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think the, uh, uh, I can understand the, uh, the, that, that sort of idea very much um, indeed. Okay, uh, well, listen, thank you very much for the discussion today and uh, all of the things that we talked about. Um, Thank you.
1: It was really interesting talking to you. Thank you. Thanks a lot.
0: Thanks.